Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. If you would, get your Bibles out and open them up, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, we're going to be reading there in just a moment. In fact, we'll be in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, kind of in and out throughout the study this morning. And so if you want to place a marker there or do something to uh, kind of make that readily available, we'll just work there and work in a number of other passages today as we spend some time together here in the, in the Word of God. As you're turning there and as you're getting settled in for this part of our worship, I will say how great it is to see everybody this morning. So glad that you are here. We're glad to have our members here. We're glad to have folks visiting with us. Glad to have even some first-time guests here. And we very much appreciate the fact that you've made it a priority to assemble with, with God's people here upon the first day of the week and to give God worship. And I hope that you're being encouraged thus far and hope that you'll continue to be encouraged even as we study in the Word. Let's do that studying right now in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm reading here beginning in verse 1. In 1 Corinthians 5 and in verse 1, here Paul says that it is actually actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even amongst the pagans for a man has his father's wife. And you, Corinthians, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In February of this year, the West Sparta Church of Christ in Middle Tennessee found itself on the receiving end of a lot of unwanted attention whenever this letter made its way to Facebook. This is a letter from the elders of that congregation to a woman who had been a member there. And in that letter, they were calling her to repentance. This woman had been living with a man outside of marriage And furthermore, she had not been attending the assemblies of the church for quite some time. And so that letter was admonishing her, encouraging her to please make her life right with God. That picture was taken and that post then got shared more than 10,000 times. And it was littered with all kinds of angry and volatile comments and reactions from people who viewed that letter as being unloving and judgmental. In fact, it got so bad that the church in West Sparta, they actually had to disable their website and their Facebook account and even had to disconnect their phone lines. Not to be outdone, a couple of months later, a woman in Georgia, she took to Instagram to share a photo of a letter that she had received from the elders of that congregation, the Woodstock Church of Christ. She too was being admonished by the leadership of that church about the lifestyle choices that she was participating in, namely that she was involved openly in a lesbian relationship. Now despite the elders being very tactful and being very biblical, I believe, in the things that they had to say, that letter also ended up going viral and not just online, but that letter and the story surrounding that even ended up making some national and global news. That church since then has been labeled as hateful and bigoted and homophobic and they even to this present day are being targeted by LGBT activists. Now, you can say or think whatever you want about the effectiveness 
and the wisdom of those churches sending letters to those wayward Christians. I think maybe there's something to be said about uh, the, the problems that that has created in sending those letters out. I think that's a matter of judgment that each congregation has to determine how they're going to handle these situations. But what these stories illustrate and the examples that they illustrate for us are attempts by local churches to simply just practice the teaching of 1 Corinthians the 5th chapter. What do we got going on in 1 Corinthians 5? What was going on in those stories? Well, you have a Christian who has chosen to live in sin. A Christian who has chosen by their own volition to sever their relationship, to sever fellowship with Jesus Christ. And as a result of their flagrant and blatant and unrepentant sin, by extension, well, that's also created some problems with the body of Christ. Those who are a part of the Lord's church, it affects that relationship. And so now the church has an obligation to admonish and to warn and to rebuke and to exhort and to plead with this person. The church out of love for one of our own. We are doing everything that we can, yes, to stand for truth, but at the very same time to reach out to this brother or to this sister who's in a terrible situation, a person who is in danger of being eternally lost. But a moment may come when all of those efforts are falling on deaf ears, all of those pleas are bouncing off of a hard heart, Repentance is not occurring. There is the danger of reproach being brought upon the local church. There is the bad leaven of that brother or that sister that is beginning to influence and threatens to influence and harm the rest of the body. And so now the church is forced to resort to some drastic measures, to some extreme measures, the kinds of measures that Paul describes in verse 5 of our text when he talks about delivering such a one over to Satan. One translation actually renders that, that they are to be handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Just let that phrase just sink in for a moment. Just that expression alone, it causes us to to shudder. It gives us cold chills. It causes us to recoil in horror. There's nothing pleasant about that thought at all. In fact, we'd rather not even think about it, let alone actually do that. My question to you this morning is, is why is that? Why is it that we are reluctant to practice what we commonly refer to today as church discipline? You know, I believe that we understand the need for discipline in other areas of life. We understand the need for discipline in our home. We understand the need for discipline in society. We understand the need even for self-discipline. Why are we so resistant to practicing church discipline, maintaining discipline in the body of Christ? You know, that church at Corinth all those years ago, they got a letter and they got rebuked by an apostle because they had failed to practice discipline on this brother who was living in immorality. And I wonder sometimes if there are congregations of God's people today who could use that same kind of letter from an apostle to say, Hey, what are you doing? You're falling down on the job. You've failed in taking the God-given steps that have been laid out in His Word regarding discipline. Which is why this morning, I want to think with you for just a few moments about this idea of church discipline. And I want to do that from the angle of why is it that that isn't always done? 
I want to suggest to you four big reasons. These are probably not the only four, but these four cover a lot of ground. Four reasons as to why churches don't consistently practice discipline and what we can learn from that so that we can avoid making that same mistake. And that all is going to begin right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 by just pointing out that sometimes we fail to discipline because, well, because we don't take sin as seriously as the Lord does. That's exactly what was happening at Corinth. Look again at verse 1. According to verse 1, one of the brethren in that church was involved in an incestuous relationship. And the rest of the church, the rest of the church really weren't doing anything about that. They didn't see that as being that big of a deal. While everybody else was saying, people even out in the world were saying, oh, that's perverse, that is wicked, that is so wrong. The Corinthians had become accepting of this brother and his choices. Or maybe at the very least, they had become numb to the ugliness of this sin. I wonder sometimes if maybe the immoral culture and climate of Corinth at that time, maybe that was permeating the church. Corinth was a notoriously wicked and sinful city, so maybe there was some influence by the culture on the congregation. Whatever the case was, though, the Corinthians had developed a very lax and casual attitude towards sin, and Paul says, verse 2, you're actually arrogant about that. You're puffed up about it. Instead of being shocked, instead of being mortified, instead of being grieved in your soul at the wickedness that's going on in this brother, your senses have become dull. And as a result, the church just remained idle. The church didn't take action. The church didn't take the necessary steps to purge that wickedness from their midst. They didn't take sin seriously. They didn't see it as destructive. They didn't think about the consequences of that man's sin. In fact, let's keep reading here because it seems as if they didn't even think about the ripple effect of this man's sin. That's verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Corinthians, you need to realize that your ho-hum attitude towards sin, it's caused this cancer to begin to spread. That sexually immoral brother, if he's not disciplined, he's going to end up dragging others down with him. You need to get serious about sin. Could that be a problem today? You know good and well that can be a problem today. In our day and age, tolerance is the highest virtue. Tolerance is the norm. And furthermore, judging. Oh, judging, that's the worst sin in the whole world. Judging is so taboo. And so who are you or I to come along and to point out the sin in someone else's life? I mean, who do you think you are? And furthermore, what gives you the right? Who does anybody have the right to go along and start disciplining and administering discipline on other people in their circumstances? I mean, after all, everybody sins, right? It's usually where this goes. Everybody falls short. That Josh, aren't you even preaching that in Romans this year? Of course I'm preaching that. That's what Romans 3 says. Everybody sins. Everybody falls short. So, so what's the big deal here? Nobody's perfect. What's all this business about hand them over to Satan? In fact, it is quite common today for someone to think about church discipline and see that as being a very unloving thing. If you had read and scrolled through the comments that were left on those Facebook and Instagram posts, that's the way a lot of people felt about that. Oh, those elders in those churches, so unloving. 
They're not doing what the Lord says. Christ is love. God is love. This is the opposite of that. This is not love. I would suggest to you that that actually is a very unbalanced view of the Lord. Look with me in Romans 11. I actually find this verse to be incredibly helpful when we're having these kinds of discussions. In Romans 11, Paul tells us about how we can develop a more accurate and balanced and complete view of God. He says in Romans chapter 11, I'm looking here in verse 22. In Romans 11 and in verse 22, Paul says, Note then the kindness, there's the love, but also the severity of God severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided that you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. God does have a severe side. And that severity manifests itself towards those who have cut themselves off from Him by their sin. And God hates that. God hates sin. In fact, look in the Psalms with me. In Psalm 5, there's a number of passages we could look at. I think Psalm 5 will be more than enough to show this. In Psalm 5, David speaks very candidly about God's feelings towards sin. Why is it that that provokes his severity so much? Psalm 5, I'm looking here in verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. God doesn't take sin lightly, does He? He abhors it. He despises it. Sin killed His Son. Let that sink in. Why does God take sin so seriously? It killed His Son. And so God wants it gone. He wants it out. He cannot abide it. It cannot be in His presence. And that is exactly the attitude towards sin that you and I must adopt. That we we hate it. We hate it because of what it does to God. We hate it because of what it did to Jesus. We hate it because of what it does to others. We hate it because of what it does to us. And that means it's not funny. And it's not cool. And it's not acceptable. No, it's heartbreaking. And it's nauseating. It separates people from God and because of that, sin can't be tolerated. And that's why then, when I see or when I learn that I have a brother or a sister who is in sin, then first and foremost, that ought to bother me. That that, that ought to stir some emotions within me. That ought to affect me. That ought to then stir me and prompt me to action that I need to do something here. My my brother or my sister, they're trapped in sin. I need to do something about that. And so what do I do? Well, maybe I begin by just following the words of Jesus in Luke 17 verse 3. If your brother sins, go and rebuke him. It's pretty simple. If my brother sins, I'm going to go and talk to him about that. Well, maybe point that out to him. Maybe he doesn't even realize that. And you know what? That might be awkward. That might even be kind of frightening. But you know what? My hatred for sin is greater than any fears that I might have about confrontation. In fact, look at me in 2 Timothy chapter 2. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, here's what really needs to color our decisions to go and to talk to a brother or a sister or anybody who is in sin. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, I'm looking at verse 24. Paul talks here. Here's the reason. Here's the motivator 
for going to somebody about that. 2 Timothy chapter 2, this is verse 24. Paul says there, 2 Timothy 2, 24, that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. We're not looking to pick a fight. That's not what we're trying to do. Instead, verse 25, we're trying to correct our opponents with gentleness so that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Notice verse 26 now, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Think long and hard about verse 26. I want to take sin so seriously that when I look at an erring brother or an erring sister, I don't want to see somebody as, oh, well, they they just made a little mistake. No big deal. Surely they'll come out of this. No. I need to see that person as being someone who has been captured by the devil to do his will and the need to be set free. That's what I need to see. And you know what? If my individual efforts to try and rescue that precious soul, if those are unsuccessful, And if maybe it then escalates to a point where then we as a congregation are having to work together on that rescue effort, then that's what we will do. And collectively, in our words and in our actions, what we will say is that we take sin seriously. We are the bride of Christ, are we not? Paul uses that kind of metaphor in Ephesians 5 and in verse 27. We are striving to present ourselves to Jesus in splendor and in holiness without spot and without blemish. We're trying to present to Him a pure bride. And so we cannot and we will not allow sin to run rampant and to go unchallenged. Sin is going to be met with swift and stern discipline because we take it seriously just like our Father in heaven takes it seriously. Which will lead me to the second reason as to why churches sometimes fail in administering that discipline. And that's because because we just have wrong ideas about the goal of discipline. If you go back to our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you will notice that Paul does use some some pretty strong and forceful language as he talks about dealing with that immoral brother. 1 Corinthians 5, just get a sampling of that again. Look in verse 2. In verse 2... He says there, he says, let him who has done this, into the verse, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse 4, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Drop down to verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Drop down to verse 11. Verse 11, but now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? And I'm afraid that whenever it comes necessary to practice church discipline toward a wayward brother or a wayward sister... I'm afraid that a lot of folks, they read those verses and the impression that they come away with is, well, you're just trying to run people off. You're just trying to run them out of here. You're just trying to, trying to weed out all the people that you view as, as a bad apple. You're trying to kick them out of the church. That's what you're trying to do. You're just trying to make yourself feel all puffed up and superior to them. You're more holy than they are. And that is pretty common thinking. 
Most folks just in general don't think of discipline in a positive way. Most folks think of discipline in a very negative way. I mean, think about it. How many of us looked forward to getting spankings when we were youngsters? Anybody? How many of us enjoyed getting our allowance taken away or being grounded and being sent to our room? Anybody? Anybody just, anybody just, just look forward to that? Of course not. Nobody does. Nobody delights in being disciplined. And when you are the recipient, you're on the receiving end of discipline, how does it feel? Well, it just feels and it just seems mean. It just seems cruel. It just seems harsh. The person who did this to me, they just, they just got it out for me. They're just being a bully. And in cases of church discipline, I am afraid that some folks get to thinking that, you know what, the church is just kind of like the mean old stepmother. They're doing this to get rid of me. They're doing this because they don't like me for some reason. Sometimes others will even jump to their defense. Even Christians will jump to their defense and they'll say, if you do this, if the church does this, you're just going to turn them away. You're going to turn them away from the Lord. Brothers, sisters, they're already away from the Lord. Church discipline is not about driving folks away from Jesus. It's not about deliberately hurting people's feelings. It's not about making ourselves all morally superior. What's church discipline about? It's about bringing a soul back to Christ. In fact, that's what Paul says. Look in verse 5 again. Paul says, you're going to deliver this man. Hand him over to Satan. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's about saving a lost soul. We'll see that again. Look in 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul again addresses this idea of a brother in sin. When he says this in 2 Thessalonians 3, and hold your hats, the brother here in 2 Thessalonians 3 is not sexually immoral. He's just a bum. And what's Paul say to do with that bum of a brother? 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you've received from us. Drop down to verse 14. Paul then says, If anybody does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Underline that. Why are you going to take these actions? Why are you going to do these things? You're going to do that so that he'll be ashamed. And why? In hopes that that will produce repentance. That that shame will produce some godly sorrow that leads to repentance. In fact, verse 15 really kind of drives that point home. Don't regard him as an enemy. He's not an enemy. But warn him as a brother. You're going to warn him because he's your family. You're going to warn him out of love. Now granted, this is what we would probably term tough love, but it's only because we care deeply and intensely about this precious soul. We're not trying to hurt that person. We're trying to help that person. In fact, if you find Galatians the 6th chapter, I think I can actually give you probably the most key word in all of this that describes the goal of church discipline. If I could sum it up in one word, it would be found in Galatians chapter 6 and in verse 1. In Galatians 6 and in verse 1, there Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, there's a brother or sister that's been overtaken by sin, then you who are spiritual should restore him. 
in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. If I could sum up church discipline in one word as to what the goal of it is, it would be that word, restore. That word literally means to mend what has been broken. To repair something. You know, imagine I've got, imagine I've got some old car that's sitting in my driveway or maybe it's sitting in the back of the, back of the house somewhere out by the barn and it's been sitting there for weeks or months or maybe even years just kind of collecting dust and, and it doesn't run. Hasn't run in a long time. That car sitting there, it's not very useful, is it? It's really kind of useless. But you know what? If somebody gets under the hood of that car, somebody who knows how to do repair work, somebody gets in there and puts that time and energy into that, then that old clunker, it can be restored. And it can be of use once again. I'm saying to you this morning that in much the same way, and this is going to sound harsh, but a Christian who has been overtaken in sin isn't of much use to the Lord. In fact, they're, they're kind of useless. He or she is broken. But if a loving brother or a loving sister or maybe an entire congregation of brothers and sisters are willing to get in there and to do some work with that person and to invest the time and the energy, maybe even do some drastic repair work, then that soul can be restored. That soul can be made useful once again when they repent and recommit themselves to the Lord. And I need to say right here that even though restoration, that is the goal, I need us to keep in mind that you can't force anybody to repent. The writer in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 6, talks about how it is impossible to renew again to repentance the one who's tasted the good word of God and then abandoned it. Hebrews 6 verses 4, 5, and 6. Now that passage is not saying that it is impossible for somebody to repent. Rather, that verse is saying that there's nothing that we can do to force anybody to repent. Our job is to simply do what the Lord has commanded and to pray and to encourage and to admonish in hopes that that erring individual will then of their own choice choose to come back to the Lord. What I hope you see then is that discipline, discipline is for our good. And again, that's radically different than the way the world thinks about discipline. It is for the good of the church. More importantly, it is for the good of the sinner. I'm looking in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, there's a comparison that is made here between earthly fathers and the heavenly father. And why it is that earthly fathers and the heavenly father disciplines their children. In Hebrews 12, this is verse 10. In Hebrews 12 and verse 10, For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. Verse 11, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What you and I need is to develop the kind of long-term vision that the Hebrew writer is talking about here. Where I'm able to look past the, the temporary pain of this moment. Yes, discipline. It hurts. It really hurts. But I need to look past all of that so that God's discipline can cause and bring about in me the end result, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And unfortunately, that is sometimes our problem. We can't look past the pain of the now. 
We can't look past all the trials and the difficulties that this discipline is causing us right here and right now. All we can think about is how much it hurts. And maybe that then leads right into this third reason as to why churches don't discipline, and that is, that's because we fear that things just might go poorly if we do this. We've all probably heard stories, haven't we? If you've been a Christian, if you've been a member of the Lord's church for very long, you've heard stories. Or maybe even you've witnessed firsthand the fallout of church discipline that went, it went off the tracks. Things went awry. We all know about brethren who have who've gotten angry and lashed out. We know of churches that have become completely ripped apart at the seams and divided because of a church discipline matter that, that wasn't handled well. We know of churches as well that have been bad-mouthed and have been disrespected and falsely accused because they simply were doing what the Bible said. There are even churches that have been sued by members who were disciplined. Did you know that? Back in 1981, the Church of Christ in Collinsville, Oklahoma, they learned that one of their members, a sister Marion Gwynn, that she was carrying on an affair, and she was carrying on an affair with the town mayor. And after multiple attempts to admonish and to encourage and to pray for her, she just refused to repent. She refused to leave that relationship. When the church ultimately ended up withdrawing fellowship from her, she ended up suing the congregation. And after a three-year battle in court, Marion Gwynn was awarded $390,000 in damages. That was more than six times the annual contribution that the church even had. Now I realize that may be a rather extreme case. That probably is not the way all of those cases are going to work out. But let's tell the truth. We are afraid that if we follow through with this church discipline stuff that Corinthians talks about and other passages talk about, that, that good is not going to result. If the end result of this is not going to be something positive, no, it's going to be something bad. That we may end up losing members. We may end up having folks who leave here. We may end up developing a bad reputation in the community. People think less of us. We may see a huge drop in our attendance, which may mean a drop in our contribution. And Are we even going to be able to keep the lights on? Yet it is surprising to me that despite all of those fears, in Acts chapter 5, in the very first recorded instance of church discipline, where God Himself disciplined Ananias and Sapphira because of their lying and their hypocrisy, the Bible tells us that the fallout of that is that the church in Jerusalem, they grew. They got stronger in the result of that. In Acts 5 verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church. Verse 14, more than ever. Believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. That church didn't get weaker. That church didn't suffer. That church got better. And it continued to grow. I would say this though. Even if church has to practice church discipline, and even if that discipline causes folks to get upset, even if it causes others to, to leave or to badmouth the congregation, if it causes a decrease in attendance or in contribution, you know what? You and I need to have the kind of conviction that says we're going to do what the Lord says anyway. We're going to have the conviction of 1 Peter 3 verse 17 that it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And I would submit to you that doing nothing is tantamount to doing evil. We are God-pleasers, not people-pleasers. And so we're going to obey what the Bible says 
regardless of the repercussions. In fact, I use the word obey right there, and that's really where this conversation needs to go. We need to think about obedience in all of this. Because I believe maybe the biggest reason as to why Christians individually and why churches collectively choose not to discipline is because is because we just don't want to obey what is a tough command. And discipline is tough. Look with me in Matthew, the 18th chapter. In Matthew chapter 18, if somebody were looking for, all right, is there a passage that kind of lays this out, you know, kind of shows us some procedure, you know, kind of some step-by-step things of what we're supposed to do, Matthew 18 is probably the closest thing that we, that we have to such a thing. In Matthew 18, this is Jesus, and how does Jesus help us here? Well, He says, Matthew 18 verse 15, He says, if your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, if he listens to you, then you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, you take one or two others along with you so that the evidence of, excuse me, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now that's the teachings of Jesus. Do you think that the Corinthians didn't know what Jesus said about that? Do you think that when Paul was in Corinth that Paul just, I just kind of forgot to tell him about that stuff. I forgot to teach him Matthew chapter 18. Do you think that they were just kind of ignorant of the Lord's instructions here? No. They knew. They knew exactly what Matthew 18 says. The problem is they just didn't want to do it. Remember Paul said they were arrogant. You mean I need to go and talk to this fellow about his sexual practices? That's going to be strange. That's going to be awkward. Then maybe it might even result to a point where we need to get up and inform the congregation, make some kind of announcement about that. Boy, that's going to be odd. That's probably going to stir up a hornet's nest. Don't you know that that guy's got got a sister? And he's got, he's got cousins, and he's got co-workers, and his best friends are all members in the congregation as well. What are they going to think? How are they going to feel? And then if it comes down to it, and we end up having to disassociate ourselves from that brother, and we treat him like a Gentile and like a tax collector, that, that's going to be really hard. I mean, come on, every October, we go over and we have a big Halloween party, and we all get dressed up, and we look forward to it, and we're together, and we enjoy one another's company. You're saying we've got to stop that? Got to end that social relationship cold turkey? Nah, that's just too hard. That's just too difficult, and we can't do it. And I will readily admit, I am sympathetic here. I understand that what Jesus is teaching here, it is difficult. It is emotional. And when you're talking about personal relationships, when you're close with folks, that makes that really hard. And furthermore, what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 about withdrawing from disorderly members, that word withdrawal, it literally means to shrink back. Think about, for example, like mini blinds on a window. You pull that string and what happens? The blinds, they shrink back from the window seal. And that's exactly what's taking place in withdrawal. Here's this person. They have shrunk back. They've withdrawn themselves from Christ. And so we in turn, in mirroring that, we then draw ourselves away from them and put that space and that separation there. And that's hard. It is. And the stuff that Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that we've noticed already, that also about stop eating with, 
Stop being involved in that kind of social relationship with that person. That person who's been withdrawn from. That person who is being disciplined. That too is incredibly difficult. And yeah, where some people are probably thinking right now, think about how that does affect and strain family relationships. And you don't need to preach at me about that. I know about the pain of having relatives. People that I love very, very dearly who have been withdrawn from because of their, their ungodly walk, because of the sins that they have chosen to involve themselves in, and the strain that that places within the family. I understand about that. None of these things are easy in the slightest. But can I say, can I say two things in that connection? Number one, God never said it would be easy. Which leads to number two, and that is that God expects us to do things that are hard. He does. And not only does He expect us to do things that are hard, He equips us to do things that are hard. Don't you imagine that it would have been hard for that father of the prodigal in Luke the 15th chapter? How hard it was for him to, to hold himself back. How much he probably wanted to saddle his donkey and drive out to the far country and to find his son and maybe to reach down and pull him up out of the pig pen himself and to bring him home. You know he wanted to do that. It was hard for him to relent. Instead, he waited patiently and prayerfully for the prodigal to come to his senses. He knew that that prodigal needed to feel the, the sting and the bite of that distance and that separation, even if it took years. And as hard as it was, he restrained himself until finally a day came that his son returned home. And that is our hope, isn't it? That the people that we know and love who are out of fellowship with God that they will come home before it is too late. But you know what? Whether that happens or whether it doesn't, you and I need to remain steadfast. And you and I need the attitude of Peter in Luke chapter 5 and in verse 5 when he said, Master, nevertheless at your word we will obey. When it's easy, we will obey. When it's hard, we will obey. Our commitment to Jesus is such that we will take decisive and difficult action because we believe that God's way is best. Our world, they don't understand this. You read the comments on those social media posts that those women put out, the comments are littered with comments from people who don't have a clue. They, they, they don't have a clue, they don't have a concept about God's way being best, but we do believe that. Which means, I'm not concerned with what the culture says. I'm not concerned with what this church over here did or what that church over there didn't do. That's not the standard. I'm not concerned about that. I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm going to do what Jesus says. I'm going to do what the Lord says. I'm going to stand for truth. I'm going to practice church discipline consistently and properly because our obedience to the Lord absolutely demands it. Now, I recognize that in many ways this was a hard and probably very uncomfortable sermon to have to sit through and to think about. Let me try to end on what might be at least somewhat of a positive note or at least a note of optimism. Do you know that old expression that sometimes gets used, it ain't over till it's over? I think that's what we need to keep in mind when we talk about discipline. It ain't over till it's over. Only death or the return of Christ can put an end to our efforts and to the Lord's efforts in bringing a lost sheep back to the fold of safety. 
And to be clear, death or the return of Jesus, that could happen at any moment. That could happen before we leave this building. But until that time comes, what are we going to do? We're going to keep on praying. We're going to keep on admonishing. We're going to keep on reaching out. We're going to keep on encouraging repentance. We're going to keep on standing firm on the Word of God. That means that we will never, ever give up. And you want to know why we're never going to give up? It's because of four little words that we began with in 1 Corinthians 5 and in verse 5. And no, it's not those four words handed over to Satan. It's those other four words. It's the words, Spirit may be saved. That's it. That's our hope. And that is what pushes and drives you and I to never ever give up because by the grace of God, a spirit may be saved saved. What about you this morning? Is there something that you need to do so that your spirit may be saved? You need to know that there is no loftier goal for your life and for yourself than that your spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And if for you this morning, if that means confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and as the Son of God, and then being baptized in water for the forgiveness of your sins, then that's exactly what you need to do, and all things are ready for you to do that today. We're encouraging you to do that, and we're ready to assist you in becoming a Christian. It may be, though, that you are a Christian, but you've not been faithful to the Lord. Brother or sister, you have to know that after a sermon like this, what we want so desperately for you, for anyone who has strayed from the family of God, is that you would then be restored to faithful service once more. Can we help you to do that? I didn't ask Rick to lead this, but it is very appropriate. He chose as our invitation song, Lord, I'm coming home. Is that what you need to do? Do you need to come home to the Father? We're ready to pray with you and to encourage you so that all of us can serve and help each other so that together we can go home and be with the Lord for all of eternity. Whatever your need may be this morning, you simply need to come to the front and make that known. Do that while we stand and while we sing.